as we come to this uh, passage, uh, verses 19, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 29, one of the things that I would remind you of is that in this ninth chapter, what we've already seen was our Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember what a blessed sight that was. Uh, there was our Lord Jesus Christ saying that there would be some there that was with him that would not see death until they had seen the kingdom of God come in power. And the way we handled that passage of scripture, you remember as we said that the transfiguration, the unveiling of the glory of Christ on that mountain was a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God coming in power. And in that event, on that mountaintop, what we saw was Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all Old Testament scripture, both by way of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And so all of Old Testament uh, uh, scripture, again, law and prophet, speak to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture points to Christ. The other thing that we saw in that passage of scripture, remember, was our Lord Jesus Christ as the beloved of the Father. And I hope and I pray that there is something that appeals to your soul and appeals to your heart when you hear Jesus Christ as the beloved of the Father. And I would ask you the question, is Jesus Christ your beloved? There is the Father, again, the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son. How many times have you prayed out, this is my beloved Savior, this is my beloved Jesus, this is my beloved Lord? You see, again, this idea that Jesus Christ is the beloved of the Father. This should have a very special appeal to you because all of your acceptance before God Almighty is because you come to Him in the Beloved. Ephesians 1.6 You and I are accepted in the Beloved. We come before God Almighty, not in our own righteousness. You know that. We come before God Almighty, certainly not in our own sin. We come before God Almighty in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are accepted in the Beloved. What a precious designation for our Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved of the Father and the beloved of my soul. And so again, there on that mountaintop, we've seen Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all scripture. Jesus Christ, again, the beloved of the Father. And now Jesus Christ comes down from the mountain. It's very interesting that when we look at this passage of scripture, there is purposely a great contrast. The contrast, again, is upon Jesus on the mountain with his disciples. And as he comes down, he comes back into what we might say kind of like the trenches. He's back into the world at large. He's back into that world of conflict and that, uh, that world of, uh, of accusation. And that's what's happening as he comes down from the mountain. This is exactly what's going on. He comes down from the mountain and he sees a crowd. And in this crowd, what does he see? Well, number one, he sees his nine other disciples. You remember, he went to the mountain with the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the other nine were down in the, you know, in the valley, we might say. It's kind of interesting. I don't want to make too much of this because it's not a, it's not a direct uh, interpretive point to make from the passage of Scripture, but I think it's something by way of an extended application that we can make. Sometimes some of us are on the, mountain, on the mountaintop with our Lord, and other times some of us are in the trenches uh, facing the opponents of the gospel. And that's what we see happening here in this passage of Scripture. When, when Jesus comes down, the nine disciples are there. It's kind of interesting. One writer brings out, and I think it's very helpful here, uh, one writer brings out the, uh, the idea that when our Lord took uh, Peter, James, and John to the mountain and the other nine were left behind, it wasn't because he was showing some type of favoritism. But rather what was being reflected there, and I thought this was very insightful on the part of this commentator, what, was being, uh, what, what you are seeing there is that Peter, James, and John were probably better equipped for the revelation of Christ and his glory on the mountain than the other nine were. And what it shows to us is this, that there is, again, sometimes variation in our faith 
and progress that needs to be made that some have made and others have not. In other words, in our Christian life, there are all these different degrees of an ability to embrace and to trust Christ. And your, your, your blessing of receiving deeper insight into the word of God, that I'm going to leave it just to that, but we have to include that, your blessedness of experiencing the, the fuller manifestations of what God has made known in Holy Scripture, oftentimes are determinative by way of your previous embrace of truths already known. One of the most effective ways, but I'm going to say this in a negative way, one of the most effective ways to stunt spiritual growth is not to embrace and act upon truth already known. Now, I don't want to demean the nine. I don't want to do that at all. And I think we should make a point that there was something in that inner group, Peter, James, and John, that showed maybe a greater readiness to believe and a readiness to embrace. And as we look at this and evaluate this and we ask ourselves the question, what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, what it means is this. Make sure you and I are acting on what we know. Make sure that we're not stifling the work of the Spirit of God within us through the revelation He's given us in His Word. We're not looking for outside revelation. We're not looking for revelation by way of dreams. We're looking for deeper insight into the Word of God and obedience to what God has revealed. And so you see here these men come down. But I don't want to make too much of that. I really don't because I don't want to demean the nine. But the nine are there. And the nine are kind of called out for their unbelief. When Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? That's primarily directed toward the nine. They were unable to deliver that boy from the possession of that evil spirit. And Jesus says there, again, oh, faithless generation. He comes down to the end of this, uh, of this context. And what does he, and when, they ask, when the question is asked, why could we not cast them out? This kind comes out by nothing but by prayer and, 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 um, and by fasting. And so there seemed to be this lack, uh, this deficiency in the disciples of that time. And our Lord kind of makes it known to them. But that's, again, just setting up this, uh, the general setting that we see here. And I don't want to pass that by too quick, as I said. But that's not where we're going here today. What I want you to see here today is really the Father. Not God the Father, but the Father of this boy. One of the things that's interesting is you look at this passage of Scripture. As we read it through, you probably notice, boy, there are a number of points that we could pick up and preach on. Obviously, the two most uh, uh, obvious is, number one, the faith of the Father, but also the whole reality of what this spiritual warfare and this, this dynamic of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, with the, these uh, de- demonic forces, uh, this, this fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is truly, truly, again, expelling uh, this demon from this young boy, uh, the fact that this young boy was uh, truly, again, possessed of an evil spirit. What is all this? Well, in all honesty, I hope to pick this up next week. I hope to come back to this passage of Scripture and open up some of the things that we see here to see what our Lord is referring to when He says this kind comes out not except by a prayer and fasting. I hope to develop that. But I do want to focus on the Father this morning. The Father, this man, this, this, this uh, can I say it, this, this beautiful man. You hear me say that oftentimes. You ever see a picture of this guy? No, I haven't. But look at this man. He's a beautiful man. He loves his son. Did you notice what he said when, when he cried out to the Lord Jesus? He says, he, he explains to him the, the difficulty of his son. But what does he say? If you can do anything, have compassion on us. That son's misery was that father's misery. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to see. 
And there's this man in all of his honesty. What does he say? Lord, I believe. He doesn't come up with any kind of bravado and any kind of false faith and any kind of, you know, uh, putting on an air or a show. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. This man was a beautiful man and we thank God for him. And so we want to take a look at this man and we're going to use uh, this man and his experience, particularly in verse, I think it's verse 24 here. In verse 24, we're going to use this as kind of like the vantage point from which we're going to preach this passage of scripture. At verse 24, where the man says this, And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And so what we'll do, as I said, we're going to use this as a vantage point. This will be, this will be the, the, the starting point and the platform from which we're going to consider this entire passage. And from verse 24, I want you to see three things about this man. Number one, I want you to see this man's affection for his son. And we see that again with that phrase, and the man cried out. We're going to see everything that led, that led up to his crying out this way. But so we're going to see the affection of an expression of the affection of this man. The second thing that we're going to see from verse 24 is an expression of the man's faith. And we see this again very clearly in the passage. Uh, he cries out with tears. And what does he say? Lord, I believe. And what I would say to you is that I, I'm, I'm convinced this was a true, this was an expression of true faith. I don't think that this was a hypocritical faith. I don't think this was a temporary faith. I don't think that this was a faith that in any way uh, was defective by way of its essential nature. It may have been weak, but it was true and genuine. And one of the things that I want to touch on is this, this, this reality, this idea between true faith and false or hypocritical faith. And then the third thing we're going to see here, again, the, the expression of affection, the expression of uh, belief, and then we're going to see the confession of the weakness of this man's faith. And this is a very honest thing that we see on the part of this man and something that we should not be afraid of. You see, again, we admit we, we were in those places, are we not? And again, sometimes I have to speak now to fathers here. Sometimes as fathers, we're aware of the fact that we have to, we have to, we have to, not only, we not only have to be faithful in the, in the, in the company of our family, we have to show faithfulness. And sometimes we know that within ourselves, Lord Jesus, help me. My faith is weak here. Give me grace to stand manfully for you here. Give me grace, again, not to in any way, by way of word, by way of action, by way of deed, in any way to come short of what you're calling me to be in this moment. And that's what I want you to see here about this, this man's faith. It, can I say it this way? It was like, it was that in-the-moment faith. And that's an important element of faith. In-the-moment faith. What do I mean by that? Well, so oftentimes, particularly we as evangelical Christians, rightly, we bring the great emphasis on the point of the gospel. What's the point of the gospel? Believe thou, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And what we do is we frame everything and hopefully what we do in our interaction with those that we care for, those that we talk with, we try to bring everything to the great pivot point of eternity in regard to that individual soul. So that as we talk to that individual, we speak to them about a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. We, we speak to them about the reality of standing before a holy God. We speak to them about the fact that one day we must all stand and give an account. We try to get them to see everything from the perspective of eternity, everything from the perspective of God's holy nature, everything from the perspective of our own sinful nature. And that's what we do by way of the pressing upon them of the gospel. And then we say that in, that in, in light or in, face, in the face of all that, God has provided his son. And if you will but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. 
And so in one sense, if we can picture it, it's like this. We are, we are inviting and asking and bringing to bear upon the conscience of those who hear us eternal realities that they may not face for another 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending. And so that saving faith is a faith that says, okay, I'm going to deal with eternity by way of this expression of faith right now. And we, and we, 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 we do it. People believe and we're thankful. We give God glory. We, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bad thing for us, but sometimes we can't believe it, you know? Preach the gospel and, and somebody believed. I witnessed my neighbor and he believed. And we think, oh, we, sometimes we're more surprised than we ought to be. And that's that saving faith. Nothing, that's that's, that's the, the point we have. That's our main point. But there's a living faith as well. There's a living faith. And sometimes it's much harder for us to live by faith in the moment than it is for us to trust God for eternity. I know God's going to save me, but I don't know where I'm going to get my bread tomorrow. That kind of faith, you see. And we have difficulty with that sometimes, don't we? And what brings that on? Circumstances bring that on. Challenges bring that on. We see things that, look, yeah, and, and you know, we see things that make us sometimes wonder, how am I going to get through this? And what I want you to see is that this is what, this is what living faith is. This is what living by faith is. This is taking up the word of God and all of our immediate decisions. We're saying, by God's grace, I'm going to do it God's way. By God's grace, what God has revealed in his word, that's what I'm going to do. By God's grace, I'm going to take a stand on his promise. By God's grace, even though everything is coming against me and I'm being attacked, I'm standing on the promises of God. And this is the idea of this living by faith. And this is the challenge, and, and this is one of the things that, if I can say it this way, my, 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 my great, uh, uh, my great uh, desire and purpose is not just to move to faith whereby you are saved from eternity, but to move to faith whereby you and I are facing right now in the difficulties of everything we're going through in light of what the Word of God has to say. And even if we have to cry out, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. It's a prayer that Jesus always answered. You see, that man's boy was healed. We'll get into all this. You see, the disciples come to Jesus one day, and what do they say? Lord, increase our faith. When was the last time you and I prayed that? Probably the last time you were in a real tight situation, right? And again, it's this idea of living faith, you see. This is what we want, and this is what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture. In the passage of Scripture, the affection of the Father, an expression of affection, an expression of faith, a confession of, um, of, the, of the weakness of faith. And we're going to take a look at that as we go on here now. So the first thing I want to say, I bring out to your attention, like I said, we're, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming down uh, from, the, um, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the top of the mountain. And what he sees immediately is this crowd. And it's kind of interesting how we see this. As I said before, uh, here we have uh, 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 our Lord coming into something of a conflict that's going on. Look at verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Verse 15, and straightway all the people when they beheld him were greatly amazed and went running to him and saluted him. Now I want to just focus on verse 14 for a moment here. Here we have the disciples, uh, clearly mentioned here, and the scribes. And what's going on here is probably reflecting what had just taken place with the father bringing this boy to, to, to Jesus' disciples and their inability to heal. And if the scribes were there, you would remember that the scribes would have been the official, um, uh, the official religious uh, authorities of the day. And so there were the disciples of Jesus. They had experienced uh, some great victories just recently. 
You remember when Jesus sent them out and he sent them out to, to cast out devils and to heal the sick and these things happened. And they must have come back and oh, they, they must have, you know how it is when you experience the grace and the power of God in your life, you feel you can take on the world. And so there they probably were and they come into this situation and, and, and they're ineffective. They're, 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 their inability is made apparent. And there's the watching scribes. And you think they said, well, you know, don't worry about it. I'm sure you guys will get it right, you know. You think they said that or you think they pounced and said, oh, come on. You see? All this stuff that your, that your, that your rabbi says, what, what value is it of it now? Where's this, where's this vaunted power that you said that you had because he gave it to you? You see, I'm sure there was, there was a conflict going on there. And I'm sure that the disciples were probably thinking, man, you ever, you ever been in those situations where you know you're floundering? <laughs> you're in the situation, you're supposed to be up for the task, and you're floundering. And I'm sure that's what the disciples felt at that moment. And so here comes the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes down from the mountain. And I have to admit, I love something here because this is not the only time we've seen this in, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look here when we come down to verses 15 and 16. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running saluted him. And he, Verse 16, and he asked the scribes, what question you with them? This is our Lord Jesus Christ taking up the cause of his people. I love this. We've seen this in other places in the Gospel of Mark. When, the, uh, when his disciples were walking through the, uh, the, the field of wheat and, and they were eating on the Sabbath day and they were questioned and they were con- kind of confronted by the religious authorities, Jesus came to their defense. And we see it here as well. And so here were these men. They were not being very successful at this time. And again, our Lord is going to bring out the reason why, but our Lord doesn't leave them. He comes to their defense. And I love that thought. Because there are those times when we're trying to do our best for the Lord, but sometimes we're floundering. And there are those times when, when, when we're floundering, our enemies are coming to us and maybe just snickering behind our back, or maybe just saying this or saying that, or sometimes they're outright accusing us. And sometimes they may be in that situation where they see, oh, now they have you. And we think, oh, what am I going to do now? Just remember this passage. Jesus comes down and he says to the scribes, why question ye them? Jesus comes to the defense of his disciples. I love it. The other thing that we see here, and this is where we're going to really see now our first point, the affection of the Father. Here we have this, everything's being set up almost for like this uh, religious or this theological uh, uh, controversy that's going to go on. Uh, Jesus comes down, uh, he confronts the scribes, the scribes are confronting the disciples, and there's a man there with a great need. And I don't think he has any time for religious controversy right now. There's a need that's greater than that. And the need is his son. And this is, we see this a couple of times in the, in the Gospel of Mark. We see these breakthroughs. Remember with that, remember with the woman that, that uh, I believe it was the woman that had the issue of blood there, I think it was in Mark 4. And there she was. And, 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 and she, was, she was socially outcast. She, she, in one sense, shouldn't even be there. And you remember the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the leader of the synagogue was in front of her. And she's probably thinking, how will I ever get this? And she breaks through it all. That's what faith does, doesn't it? Yes, there are obstacles, but remember what we said when we preached from that passage of Scripture? Faith breaks through the obstacles. And so this is what this is happening here. And why, does, why, does, why is this man breaking through? Because of his great love for his son. This is why I said before, this man is a, is, is a beauty to behold. What we see here, again, look here in, in, um, in, verse, uh, in verse 17. Uh, and one of the multitude answered and said, Master, 
I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Now, let me say this. <clears throat> we're focusing right now on the affection of the father, rightly so. But this is where we're going to get to, where we talk about the faith of the man, the expression of faith. This man had true faith. Did you see? He went to Jesus. That's faith. And I think that we should not turn a blind eye to the fact that this man's circumstances, we have to be careful here. I'm gonna, and I'm, if I can say it this way, I'm going to start very mildly. And hopefully I'm going to build up to something about this man's circumstances. This man's circumstances were used by God. Fair enough. This man's circumstances were allowed by God. Fair enough. But is our embrace of God's greatness and his sovereignty such that we can say without fear, God brought this man into these circumstances in order that this man's faith might be seen and expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I say this tenderly? Because I know it's difficult to be in the middle of a situation you can't make out heads or tails how God is going to be glorified in this. Nothing but disaster is upon you. Nothing but evil seems to be... And, 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 and you, you, you hesitate to say, how could God be in this? Because it's just, you want to say, like we read in the scripture, when it comes to the, uh, uh, to the field with the, with the tares, with the wheat and the tares, where, where the man says, an enemy has done this. We want to leave it at that. But we come back to these passages of scripture when we're in the, we're in the middle of the struggle. We say things like that. When we're past the struggle, we say, uh, we say maybe something better. Well, God used that, Romans 8. But I think, in what, I think that when we get to heaven, we're going to say, God brought it all to pass in order that I might be in heaven one day. And I think that's what's happening here. Here's this man in the midst of this very, very difficult situation. And what does he do? He comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, showing great affection for his son. And notice the ways in which we see the affection of the father for the son. Again, uh, a master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. That must have been very difficult to see. That must have been a, a very, a very uh, uh, hurtful, or not hurtful, but just a, uh, oh, to see your son in a situation where you can't do anything for him. There he is, again, being, and it says, the text says, being thrown into the fire and being thrown into the water. And this man having to go into the water and pull him out. And this man having to go into the fire and pull him out. And this man having to keep him from this and keep him. It must have been, it must have been something. And I find it amazing that we don't find a mention of the man's mother, the boy's mother here. Nothing to, to, you know, nothing to go in a bad direction here. The mother may have had other children that she was watching. The, uh, the mother may have been uh, with, at home with the family. But I do think it's very interesting that the focus now here is on the father and his affection for his son. And I think it's speaking to us as fathers that we too can have affection for our sons. All the challenges that sometimes are, are created by that. But here is the father. And I think of the passage of scripture. Uh, uh, Psalm 103, verse 13. Like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Oh, you see this idea of this father's affection. We love to see it. Verses again, 17 and 18 uh, from the ESV. And and, uh, a teacher, I brought my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. That's going to be interesting here in a minute. And, And whensoever it seizes him, he throws him down so that he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Going down later on in verse 22, uh, it is often 
excuse me, it is often cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. To destroy him. You see, what's the purpose of wickedness? What's the purpose of evil? It's to destroy. And again, we may not face that by way of physically in our children. We may not see uh, an evil spirit, again, uh, getting a hold of them and throwing them into the fire and throwing them. We might not see that. But we know that every evil intention of Satan is to destroy the souls of our children. And like this father, what do we do? We go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man, again, not finding the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he do? He goes to his disciples. And again, I'm not going to beat these men up. I'm not. But I do think that the disciples present something to us of a picture of the church of Jesus Christ apart from the power of Christ. These men were impotent at this point. They did not have the wherewithal to deal with this man's need. And we as the church of Jesus Christ, you see again, we understand people come to the church. I don't mean the physical building. They come to the people of God. And they say, pray for me for this and pray for me for that. And can you help me with this? And can you do this? And we say, yeah, well, whatever. And we understand, though, when it's all said and done, we have no power in and of ourselves. We're like these nine disciples. And so, again, what we do is we point men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Yes, we're weak, but the Lord Jesus Christ, again, has this power. And so what we're seeing by way of this man's affection for his son is also introducing us to the profession of this man's faith. And what I want you to see is this. Christ responds to true faith no matter how feeble it is or no matter what the circumstances be that surround it. Why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because having come to faith in Christ and speaking maybe to your friends about it or others knowing that you've come to faith in Christ, don't be surprised if there are people cynical enough to look at you and say, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course he came with faith in Christ. Look, this, look at the situation he was in. I, if you'll allow me, I, I probably do this more than I should, but when I was preaching this to the, to, to the men in the prison, I, keep, I, don't, I don't know if I should bring that up as much as I do, but I was saying to them, you know, you come to faith in Christ, and, you know, the people who, who, could, who at the very best could care less for you, People say things like, well, of course he came to Christ. Yeah, of course he got religion. What you expect? He was in jail. He got religion. And say to these men, listen, you understand that sometimes that coming to faith in Christ in jail is indeed a false profession of faith. That's why I was bringing out this idea. How do you know between a true profession and a false profession? A false profession of faith is only holding on to Christ in the moment. And as I said, it's like, it's like an umbrella, like a rain jacket. It's raining, you put it on. When it's not raining, you take it off and leave it aside. <clears throat> but every true expression of faith, no matter how weak, and that's the point, every true expression of faith, no matter how weak, will not be turned away by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point that we see here. <clears throat> you see, it's just what our Lord says in John chapter 6, verse 37. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I don't care how small your faith is, how weak your faith is, how many questions attend your faith. Come to Christ in sincerity of heart and he will not turn you away. And when, and when people, again, mock and question, expect it. But understand, Christ will not mock. Christ will not send you away. And so again, this man's affection for his son is leading us to help us to understand this man's profession of faith. As I said before, it was true faith. It was true faith that the man had. Verse 17. Again, teacher, I brought my son to you. 
He didn't see. He didn't see the Lord Jesus at that time. Jesus was again on the Mount of Transfiguration. His disciples were there, but he wasn't bringing them to the disciples. If I can say it this way, he wasn't just bringing them to the church. He was bringing them to Christ, and that was the point. This was true faith, as I said before. And we see here again in verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, again, the impotence of the church. And what we in the church must do is kind of like what we saw last week in Ephesians 3.21. Now unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. You see, the church is important as it is. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't fully grasp the importance of the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think you and I, we don't fully realize the significance of what it means to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Not so much a member of a local congregation, very, very important, very necessary, but a member of that elect body that God has saved. Book of Hebrews, the the church of the firstborn. That's the church you're a part of. You see, again, there there is something about that. But again, the effectiveness and the and the usefulness and and the and and, and the glory that, that 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 attends the church is all a derived glory. It's all through Jesus Christ. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. And so, as this man brings uh, his son to the disciples again, there is a there is a, there is an impotency there. Uh, but oh, what power there is in the Lord Jesus Christ! And so, when we come to this man's faith, even though it's a weak faith, there are some things I want you to know about faith in general, even if it's a weak faith. Number one, you need to understand that even a weak faith is received by Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he the power of the sons of God. It doesn't say as many as as received him with the full full strength of all their belief. No, even a weak faith is, is received by the Lord Jesus Christ. Weak faith will save. And again, let me say this. There are great advantages to strong faith. I'm not making a case for weak faith here today, but I want to, in some way, uh, uh, console you if, if whether or not you are dealing with these issues of, of realizing the weakness of your faith. I want you to understand that even a weak faith joins a soul to Jesus Christ. Even a weak faith will bring about forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him give all, pro- all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. You see, no qualifier on the faith. Whosoever believeth in him with all the strength of their heart. We understand there is this importance of embracing Christ in sincerity. But oftentimes our faith is, 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 is kind of like that, that image that Daniel saw uh, there in his dream where, uh, where he saw the statue. Remember the statue's uh, feet had the ten feet of clay and iron mixed together. Sometimes our faith is mixed with all kind of, all kind of de- uh, defects and deficiencies. But even a weak faith can be a saving faith. The other thing I would say is this about this uh, weak faith is that even your weak faith, I hope it's not weak, but if it is, I want you to know that even weak faith is a sign of your being chosen by God, your election of God. Now, this is another one of these things where it takes, it takes, it takes time to develop this doctrine of election. It takes time to develop these things. And I don't want to rush into this too fast, but understand this, the, the scripture is clear on these matters. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I want to say this. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, even if that faith is weak, and even if that faith faith has deficiencies, but if it is sincere, that's a mark that God has, has chosen you. Your expression of faith, true faith, sincere faith, is a mark that God has worked in your life to give you that faith. 
But again, we can work this out another time. Even weak faith is a great mercy because to be without faith is to be without hope and without Christ in this world. So I don't know if you're like this man who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know what's driven you to the Lord Jesus Christ. For this man, it was his great affection for his son. And maybe some of you have children that you're crying out for and praying for. Maybe some of you had come to faith in Jesus Christ and a crisis experience in your life. I'm saying to you, don't let anybody demean you for that. If that faith was genuine and true faith, no matter how weak it is or was, it was faith that joined you to Jesus Christ. And that's a great mercy. And so again, this, this idea of faith that we see in this man. Well, I have to interact with, with each of you now here. And I would ask you the question, how do you know whether or not uh, you have a, a, a weak faith or, or, or a temporary faith or a hypocritical faith? I have to do this. In one sense, I feel I know you as a congregation, even the visitors here. I feel that I know you, and, I, and if I were pressed for it, I think I could say that you're here by way of faith in Jesus Christ. But I, you know that I would do your soul a disservice if I just assumed that and didn't preach the gospel to you. So how can you and I know whether or not our faith is a true faith and not a hypocritical faith? Well, I've given you some indications of it already. The hypocritical faith, as I said before, it'll, it's, you know, we, we have the terminology for it, right? Foxhole religion, foxhole faith. Get me out of this and I'll do that. Get me out of it. And as soon as you get out of it, it's like it says, our faith becomes like the dew in the morning. As soon as the sun comes up and the clouds are gone, all the dew evaporates. Faith is oftentimes like that, is it not? But again, how do we know the difference between a, a true faith or maybe a weak faith? Let's put that, how, we know, how do we know the difference between a weak faith and a hypocritical faith? Well, first of all, notice some things about this man. This man's faith, as well as his affection, gave him a tender and melting heart. This, this man, again, as he came to the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we see? We see everything by way of tenderness in this man's soul. It's very, it's very inappropriate. It, it, it doesn't line up when we as the people of God walk around with these hearts of stone. And sometimes we do it, don't we? Sometimes we're as hard as the next guy. It's, it's, a, it's a sad thing. And, and, and certainly I'm, you know, I'm prone to it. Maybe you're prone to it. But we can have these hard hearts, these, these, these unattentive hearts, these, these hearts that think nothing of the misery of others. Well, of course, we, had, we have all the natural inclinations by way of what this man was to this child, by way of him being a father. But we don't want to pass over the fact that he had a tender heart. I believe that this was part of a work of the Spirit of God within him. Uh, the, the, secondly, what we see is this, is that, is, that, is that the man did have some sense that there was a true faith in Christ. That there was, a, there was a true coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what else was there. And I think that this is one of the things that, that show us about the reality of even if our faith is weak, it's not a hypocritical faith. There is something about the person of Christ that we can't get by, so to speak. There is something about the person of Christ that we can't leave off. There's something, again, even with, all of our, even with all of our temptations and all of our trials and all of our failures and all of the things that seduce our heart, there's something about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that's one of the marks of real and true faith. But you have to, again, in the face of these weaknesses, cry out. And this brings us to the third thing. Here was a man that cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ with fervent prayer. I think it's very interesting when our Lord deals with this man and he says to him concerning his son, he says, how long has, 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 the son, has your son been in this situation? And we think Jesus needed information. 
You think he was just taking this down? Let me see if I can write this down and I'll, and I'll figure this all out. And I'll, yeah, like, you know, like, like the counselor. I don't think he was doing that. I think he wanted to hear this man. I think he wanted to hear this man speak about the difficulty of his son. I think he wanted to hear this man pray. You know, Jesus knows all about your situations. What's the hymn we sing sometimes? He knows all about our troubles, but he loves to hear you pray. And so in your difficulty, and how do you know true faith is there? True faith, again, goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer, and it cries out. And even if necessary, it exposes itself. It says, Lord, my faith is weak. Help out my unbelief. And this is what he does. And this is the other thing we see about this man having a true faith is that this, is that this true faith ex- exhibited itself in a greater desire for more faith. And I, that, that might be the very key to understanding between a hypocritical faith and a true faith. A hypocritical faith is satisfied with getting out of the situation. And in one sense, it's not even a true faith. It's a counterfeit faith. It's, a, it's, this, it's, this, it's this cry to get out of a situation. And so, as I said before, so long as it gets me out of the moment, good, fair enough, and I'll leave it off until I need it again. That's not what true faith does. True faith desires more and more the Lord Jesus Christ. True faith desires more and more to know the things of God in the life. True faith desires to see Jesus Christ exalted in all of life. And so we see this in this man. Here he was again desiring for more faith that his faith be made stronger. And let me say this about about true faith. Is it true faith is aware that sometimes in the Christian, not sometimes, but all the time in the Christian, there are what we might call these contrary principles that the Christian always has to, has to make sure that he or she uh, manages. What are the contrary principles? Well, the Apostle Paul speaks about it in Galatians 5.17. He says this, the flesh, lust against the, uh, the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would. What do we see here? There are two contrary principles in the Christian. There, are the, there is the dominant power of the grace of God resident in the soul, and there are the remaining effects of sin that the Christian must address himself to. And the Christian cannot allow the remaining effects of sin to regain any type of ascendancy. That's always the great challenge. That's always the great battle. Sometimes it, takes, sometimes it manifests itself in all those fleshly desires that we have. Other times it manifests itself in the way that we think. Have you ever, as a Christian... Thought low thoughts about God? Have you ever, as a, as a Christian, thought that even God can't get you at that? demeans God. And again, so many times I have to say, I have to catch myself not to think low thoughts about God, not to have unworthy thoughts about God. God is to be thought of in a certain way, an exalted way. And that's the contrary principle. You see, again, unbelief, the, 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 the residual elements of sin are always leading me to those things that would draw away glory from God. And so, these, and so a weak faith realizes that. And a weak faith, again, lives by the principles of the Word of God and says no to those things that would take away glory from Christ. Amen. Now, this danger of, of unbelief, I, I, I'm, I'm moving here from weak faith. Now, I want you to see something about unbelief, and I want to use an illustration here. 
I was listening this past week to an audio book uh, of uh, John Bunyan's The Holy War. If any of you have read that, uh, you know that it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent book. What a picture of the Christian life. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a picture. We're, we're more familiar with uh, uh, Bunyan's uh, work on Pilgrim's Progress, something that you, we all should read, uh, The Holy War as well. And it's very interesting. At one point in this, uh, in this book, The Holy War, this allegory, what uh, Bunyan describes is what uh, Satan, known as Diablos in, the, in this book, what Satan does in order to arm his followers against the approaches of God's grace into their soul. And uh, um, Bunyan, uh, in, in a very, uh, very, very, very neat way, he shows how that Satan himself equips his people with an armor that counterfeits the armor that God gives to his people. And he says this, remember in, in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul takes us, take up the shield of faith. And Bunyan in this story says, Diablos has a shield as well. And it's not a shield of faith, it's a shield of unbelief. And notice how he describes it. And this is Bunyan speaking as, as, uh, in, in, in the words of Diablos. And he says this, my shield is a shield of unbelief or calling into question the truth of the word of God. For all the saying that speak of the judgment of Shaddai or the judgment of God that he has appointed for wicked men. And what he means here is this. When you hear the judgments of God upon sinners, don't believe it. You may have experienced people like this. You talk about the judgment of God upon sin and they think you're talking about a cartoon. The judgment of God means nothing to them. It's that shield of unbelief. He goes on. Uh, Diablo says, he says, use the shield, he says to his followers. Use the shield, he says. Many attempts have been made upon it, and sometimes it is true it has been bruised. But they that have writ of the wars of Emmanuel, again, this is a, uh, refer, referring to God. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Emmanuel is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the captain of, uh, of the Lord's host. The wars of Emmanuel against my servants have testified that he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief, the shield of unbelief. Now, to handle this weapon of mine aright. It is not to believe things because they are true or what sort by whomsoever asserts them. If he speak of judgment, care not for it. If he speak of mercy, care not for it. If he promise, if he swear that he would do good to man's soul, that's the city that's being in the conflict. If he turn, no hurt but good, regard not what is said. Question the truth of all. For this is to wield the shield of unbelief aright as my servants ought to do. And he that doth otherwise loves me not. Oh, it comes down to the affections of the soul, doesn't it? And he that does otherwise loves me not, nor do I count him but an enemy to me. This is Satan speaking to those who he has in his grasp. He fits them out for for the warfare. He gives them the shield of unbelief. Are any of these things, have have you seen any of these things in you? Have you questioned the reality as to whether or not there is a thing of a day of judgment? if you question the reality as to whether or not God would be merciful to you, oh, away with that shield. Take up the shield of faith. Put on this helmet of salvation, you see. Think right about God. And so in this passage of Scripture, we see the the nature of this man's faith. And this brings us very, very quickly to his, his confession of the weakness of his faith. Notice again here, verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I believe that this is a prayer that Jesus always hears. I really do. 
And it's very interesting here in verse 23. Here is the man. And I think this is, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. We oftentimes go past this. The man says in, in, in verse 22, again, here, here's his affection. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. Please note that. It doesn't just say have compassion on my boy. It says have compassion on us. We know what it is. It, it, it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? We never thought that we could feel hurt so much by the pain of another. But when we see our loved ones in pain, it hurts. And the man says this. Says, this is why he says have compassion on us. And notice what our Lord says, and I find this very interesting. Here in verse 23, And Jesus said to him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. I'm convinced that many people would take issue with Jesus at this point. Many people would say, "What? A man came to you asking for help, and and you and you pressed out of him, whether or not he believed. Why is this? Well, this is what I said before. I'm convinced that our Lord Jesus Christ is more concerned about our eternal destiny than about our current situations. He's not. He's he doesn't turn a blind eye to them. He has compassion on the, on this young boy. <clears throat> We're going to see this in, in, in a little bit. Maybe next week we'll see it." He, the, 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 the demon tears the boy, throws him down. Everybody thinks he's dead. And our Lord Jesus lifts him up. There's compassion there. But up to this point, what is our Lord doing? He's pressing out this confession of faith. God allows, God allows, God uses, God brings, God causes circumstances to press out faith in you and me. And here is our Lord Jesus Christ. If thou, if thou believest, all things are possible to you. Oh, our Lord is saying that to you and me in the midst of our situations today, you see. This is that living faith I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the faith that you have that says you're good. To, you know, I hate to say it this way, but you know, this. But let me, let me put it in a better way. Now, I'm not talking about that faith that says my soul is right with God for eternity. I'm talking about that faith that enables you to face your all your difficulties right now in the in, in the light of the promises of God, and says I do believe that God is able to work in these things. And what our Lord says here, all things are possible. Let me say this. <clears throat> Too often times, this passage of scripture is used uh, by those who would, uh, who would who would twist and pervert the word of God. You know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about these TV preachers. I t- you know, maybe I'm talking too much about these guys. These guys that would use a passage of scripture like this. And again, what that would mean is that you know how it works out. Give to them and anything is possible to you. And we rightly call these guys out. But I'm afraid sometimes because we know the, the abuse of this, uh, of this passage of scripture. I'm afraid sometimes we don't come up to what this passage of scripture is calling us to. We are called to an act of living faith in Jesus Christ. If thou believes, all things are possible to him to believe. And in this situation, it's not beyond you. Because the Lord Jesus Christ would say, he is there. Oh, you see, face your situations. Face all of your days in light of this passage of scripture. And what does the man say? Again, the great passage. I believe, help thou my unbelief. Jesus answers this prayer. How do we know he answers it? The boy is healed. The boy is freed from the demon. And again, even as we read in, in Isaiah chapter 61 and in, in, in uh, Psalm 118, this idea of God's delivering power, the mercies of the Lord endure forever. That's why you sing his praises. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 7, uh, Luke 17, verse 15, the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Paul says to the Thessalonians of Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, and it is me, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. Do you understand? Living faith. 
A faith, again, that not only leaves, causes us to leave this, this place of worship this morning, knowing that our souls are secure for eternity, but a faith that causes us to go out of these doors with a present confidence in God Almighty and a confidence in the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if my faith is weak and I call out to Him, oh, this Lord Jesus, He'll strengthen my faith. Why will He strengthen it? Because He's the author and finisher of faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Again, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, we've gone on quite a bit here. And so as we come to the end of this uh, sermon, again, we've not exhausted the passage. We'll come back to it next week. How do we, how, how do we find that our faith is strengthened? How does God faith in our, strengthen our faith? Well, first of all, let me say this. You can, be, you can be assured that God is calling you or God is bringing you to a strengthening of your faith through the exercise of your faith. It gets back to what we said earlier, you see. That so oftentimes the greatest hindrance in our advancing in the things of Christ, in the, in the advancing in our, in our settledness in the things of God in our souls because we're not living up to or acting upon everything that God has already given to us in His Word. And let's live up to everything that God has revealed. So exercise faith, believe God, trust in Christ, and rest upon His Spirit to do His work in you. You see, this man, as I said before, he's a beautiful man to behold in Scripture. But this man takes second place to the beautiful and compassionate Savior who will see every, every exercise of true faith and who will always respond in a strengthening way to every soul that cries out, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for this passage of Scripture and we thank you for such a Savior that is ours. And we would pray to him this morning, Father, oh, strengthen our unbelief. Help us, we pray, Lord God, not to be weighed down by questions, by low thoughts of you, by thoughts that would say to us, oh, that God, that, you, that even you can't do anything in this. Help us, Lord God, not to ascribe to you evil motives for the situations we find ourselves in. But Father, help us to come before you in, <clears throat> in faith, we pray. And help us to stand upon your word and help us to look to your dear son. Do these things, we pray, Father, for the honor of thy name. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.